Sawabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a grape that was actually the most planted wine grape in South Africa for much of the 20th century, since so. Starting the 1960s, it began to decline in popularity, and today it makes up less than 2% of the country's vineyards. However, many young winemakers are giving it a second look and rediscovering its virtues. Let's meet a few of them. So I'm Alex Milner from Natafile, South Africa. We're about equally spaced between Stellenbosch and Paul, for those who know the area, on the very iconic Siemensburg mountain. The first time I came across Sinso was at university while studying the various cultivars that were planted in the country. It was told to us by a very good professor that it was once the most planted grape in South Africa, but hence has fallen into obscurity and you don't really need to learn about it. The more important things, you as young winemakers will probably never ever have to touch this cultivar, so why waste your time learning about it? Fast forward a few years, I graduate and I ended up in Provence making wine there as a sort of apprentice, internship, whatever you want to call it. And we made an awful lot of Sinso. It was actually quite amusing for me because I remember thinking at the time, writing an email to my father saying, my lecturer told me, you never have to read about this. And here I am spending two months of my life making it. The estate was Domaine de in the south. And that sort of planted the seed. And when I came back, I persisted with a sort of Cabernets and Shirazes that people were wanting to make and, and what as a university graduate we thought was the direction we were moving in. And then I guess I just hit a crossroad when it just wasn't going in the right direction for me. The resources required to make a great cab at that stage was highly intensive. A, to get good grapes was highly competitive. Just generally it was complicated. And I remember standing, picking some Merlot and the block next to it was an old bush vine, Sinso and chatting to the farmer, and he was vaguely complaining because I asked him about it, and he said, oh, this is uh, Sinso, and yeah, we don't really get much money for it from the cooperative, but that's interesting, it's nice. And I was just immediately fascinated by it. It looked like table grapes. It was definitely an overcrop vineyard. Sinso does have the tendency to overcrop, but it was going into a cooperative system that was very normal. And the farmer said to me, well, look, come back tomorrow, come grab some, make yourself a barrel which I did, and after vinification and tasting the wines that I had in the little cellar at the time, it was definitely the best wine I had made. And this was back in 2011, so 10 years ago. And it's really snowballed from there. What really got me and made me excited, it was so different in the fermentation tank. The skin's becoming like translucent tissue paper. It was something so beautiful and really excited me. They have an awful lot of juice. Punch downs are very easy, which is rather pleasant. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but when you've got a lot of them, it works really easily. It presses really easily. You get so much free flow juice after ferment. It's actually very easy to work in the fermentation room. From a point of fermentation, fermentations run pretty smoothly, generally. And we work it quite gently. I think it's a very important concept for winemakers to remember that you can make a good wine which has a light color. And I think when you approach Sinso, you can't 
come out of it thinking you're going to make some dark colored red. You've got to accept it for what it is and embrace that. Because I think as soon as you embrace that, you start making really interesting sensors. But there are a few sensors that I've tasted, which you can tell that the winemaker is trying to make a bodybuilder from a ballerina, if that makes any sense. And obviously I'm the converted, but it'll come with time. This is something very new that's coming in and it's great to see. So the more people make it, the more people will see. My name's Solomon Royal. I'm the owner and winemaker and say viticulturist and logistics, whatever you want to call it, for Royal Wines and based mostly in the Swatland. I do use a bit of grapes from other regions, the Big Cliff, some special spots in Stellenbosch, but regarding Cinso, mostly from Swartland, and then also one vineyard in the Darling season. I started looking for grapes that you could find old vineyards of, which was quite important. It's always been important in my wines and in the wines I strive to make. In South Africa, with red wines, there's not a lot of old wines around. The one variety there is actually lots of plantings of in all the different areas and in good quantities even is Sinso. Also, the reason for me leaning towards Sinso, traveling quite extensively, selling my wines all around the world and then being inspired by other wines you taste. Ten years ago, it was all about these powerful wines with mega structure and deep color and all these things and what I've come to love these days is just wines with great drinkability. Wines like Beaujolais, Morgon, Frappato. These things are incredible. I mean, some lighter versions of Grenache, I think, make delicious wines. So the whole approach for Cinso in my range was to make a wine that's light, that's fresh. Something can be picked relatively early, but it still needed complexity. So that's why the old vines work quite well, I think, with Sinso. My name is Mick Craven, and I'm one half of Craven Wines. I'm the Australian side, and my wife Janine is the much smarter and prettier and more intelligent Janine Craven, who is South African-born, born in Stellenbosch, born in the vineyards, not literally in the vineyards of Stellenbosch, but grew up in the vineyards of Stellenbosch, where her father farmed. Essentially, Janine and I are very much focused on making single variety Stellenbosch wines. We really want to show a sense of place, although that's a very cliched term, but we just want to show unique places around Stellenbosch, what we can grow there and what we can turn into what we think is pure, delicious wine from one vineyard and one variety, of which one of those is the magical grape that is Cinso. From a perspective of Janine and I, when we started Craven Wines, it was never really on our radar, to be brutally honest. Janine, when she was growing up on her family farm, they definitely had Sinsogs. Back then, they used to farm with essentially the big three. It was the Sinso, Clara Blanche and Shannon, which made up a huge part of the vineyards around here, going back quite a few decades, but still was a very important makeup. But for Janine and I in 2015, I'm pretty sure it was Chris Allight was taking Sinso from a vineyard up on the Bottler A Hills in Stellenbosch, and he was sourcing it to make one that I believe doesn't exist anymore, but he was also sharing a vineyard with, I believe, Alex Milner, I could be correct or could be wrong, and John Seckham was up there, and I believe Marilise Nimmin had a little bit. It was a stage of Craven Wines where we were 
still experimenting a bit. We'd only been making wine under our label for a couple of years. And we just thought it'd be a good example to dip our toe in the Cinso water. And I think it's something we shied away from because I guess from a, a stylistic point of view, it made sense for Craven because we generally try and make a lighter style of wine, which Cinso really does. But we always found a lot of the Cinsos here and obviously I'm not trying to point fingers or say anything, but they were either really light and had no substance or they were very overdone and had no finesse or elegance to them. So Janine and I felt that it was a grape that would struggle by itself as a single variety, even though this is 2015 where there was quite a few people making delicious Cinso. But for us, it was a thing still in our minds. I look back on this and think well, how stupid we were, but it was a great, that was made to be blended. And that's what a lot of people thought. So from that respect, we just thought, you know what, let's get a ton and just see what happens. And I guess that's really where it all began for us. Everything we do is single vineyard. And once we've picked a vineyard and we like that vineyard and we bottle it, we don't move unless the vineyard is pulled up because for us the whole beauty of what we think we're doing is to give people potentially over 15 20 years if the wines hold up that long a good snapshot into what that vineyard's doing over a long amount of time so for us to chop and change from one since vineyard here to another since vineyard here it makes no sense to what we're doing so basically what happened was that vineyard itself is a very small vineyard and we couldn't get much grapes from it and there was a bit of, I don't know the politics or whatever happened in that vineyard with the grower and something else, but the subsequent year, we didn't have access to the grapes and we weren't heartbroken by it. We really enjoyed the wine. But the following year, I was chatting to a grower from a great farm called Rastanov, which is down right next to the False Bay, which, who I've happened to work with at Moldebosch, actually, at my old previous job. Amazing farm, great Cinso, great Shannon, great everything else, actually. And it was actually our dream to actually get Cinso on that farm, but it was always taken. I think there's about four or five blocks, but it was always spoken for. And just by chance, I was speaking to Peter Pridell, who's the farmer there, the owner, and I just casually asked, do you have any Cinso? And he said, literally, someone's just pulled out of this block. Do you want her? And that's where it went from. So it was a bit of timing and fate. So we switched over to that side and it's a completely different site. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, since I, it is like Pinot in that respect, it is very site specific. Just because it is so fragile and thin skinned in that sense, it really can show where it's from. So I think we still have some bottles of 2016 lying around. 2016 is from the vineyard and the bottleray. But from 2017 onwards, it's always been from Rostanov. So that was the big shift for us in Cinso. And since then, we've been working with that block and couldn't be happier. The Bottleray Hills is much more inland. The vineyard was actually up the top of the, I guess, the hills, if you want to call them. It's up the top of my head. It's probably around a 1,000 feet. So it's not that low. It's got a bit of elevation. And it does get cool breeze up there, but it's definitely much cooler at the new side. So the Rostanov site is probably only 15 miles as the crow flies. So it's, it's still relatively close, but the new site is probably three miles from the ocean, right on that cold, false bay. During summer, it could be 8 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit difference during the day from the Botley Hills down to this vineyard site. So it is much cooler. But then again, it also 
It doesn't have the diurnal shift at night so that the Bodhray area probably gets a little bit cooler at night because it's not as coastal. So I think that's had an effect. And obviously the soil is quite a big difference. Up in the Bodhray where this vineyard was, there's this belt of Malmesbury Shale, which runs through there. Whereas where we are now, it's essentially beach sand and good decomposed granite. So there's a nice bedrock of granite, but it is very sandy. It's a much poorer soil. And it's hard to tell style-wise just because back then we were making it whole cluster and it's got a very big effect. But I just find the Rusnaf site, it's a bit purer. It's got a lovely herbal, very fain bossy, that's what we call natural vegetation here, but really pure, bright, violety fruit. Whereas the Bottleray stuff we found was a bit darker and a bit more intense. It's probably much closer to the stuff you get in the Swartland compared to what we get down in the sort of southern Selawash region. We have quite a dynamic viticultural region in South Africa, and Sinso pops its head up all over the place. Often I felt there must be one region which is better than the other, and I did quite a extensive project of making various parcels of wine from various vineyards across these wine growing regions in the hope of finding a sort of eureka moment and say, this is where good Sinso comes from. And it was very conclusive what came out of that. They all make good wines. They're just all slightly different and some considerably different. And I think this is really the reason why these old vines are still in the ground in these diverse wine growing regions because they are generally quite nice. And basically the short gist Darling, for me, is a very standout region. It's generally quite floral, violets, a bit earthy. Sometimes it can be seen as a bit herbaceous, but I disagree with that. It's more floral and violets. Then you've got Stellenbosch, which is much lighter, because I think Sinso is influenced by the sea. Both the blocks that I've worked with in Stellenbosch are generally quite close to the sea. One was on the Helderberg, one is on the Bottleray areas and you get very strawberries light red fruits the lightest of the spectrum that i've got to work with and then you immediately move to the more warmer areas of pal which you immediately getting a slightly richer red fruit hedgerow fruits and then you go to swartland and you're getting a lot more darker fruit it's a stunning wine but very different from the rest and, and that's obviously to do with heat dry land bit more concentration. When we did this to try and ascertain quality back in 2014, we bottled four single vineyard Sinsos. I'll mention the regions. Swartland was one, Siemensburg Paul was another, and Stellenbosch, and then Darling. 2019 was the first year that we did streamline that offering a little bit. I think for me, the main reason really was to try and sell four Sinsos, which are telling the same story, was quite complicated. If I lived in a perfect world, I'd definitely still be making all four. What made me think which ones to choose, I felt that our Darling Vineyard really stood apart from anything else that we have. And it's consistently always performed very well. The second one was Stellenbosch, because we were very fortunate through a wine friend to get hold of a very old smallish block in Stellenbosch. It's on the Jakobsdal farm, which was renowned back in the day for Pinotage. It's planted in 1972. This is the second vintage that I work with it in 2021. And it's a very exciting block. It's only about 0.8 of a hectare. So it's pretty small, but really very interesting. And 
obviously these two, our Darling and Selimosh, fall within the Old Vine project, which we are now a member of. The other two vineyards did not fall at that stage. The wine has subsequently fallen into that age category. They've got to be 35 years of age. But we just felt that the Stellenbosch wine and the Darling wine was something of unique importance to put in a single vineyard bottling. I felt the Siemensburg Pohl wine was something replicated many times within the Sinsos sold within South Africa, as well as the Swatland. It wasn't something that really, oh, have you tasted that? It, it was something which was a generic flavor profile. And I feel if you're trying to make a single vineyard wine, it's got to stand apart from the crowd, if that makes any sense. Darling used to be part of the Swatland. It became its own appellation a while back. I think mostly because they considered the white wines there, the, the Sauvignon Blanc, being closer to the ocean and having a different sort of microclimate. But the two sites I work with, they're quite close to each other. So I would say it's the darling side of Swartland. And they're both on iron-rich soils. In Afrikaans, we have this thing called coffee clip. But it's, it's just these tiny little pieces of iron almost, little iron rocks. And then this very deep, dark clay soils. And those two sites are both bush vines. They're both unirrigated, dryland, old vines. One was planted in 82 and the other one was planted closer to 1990, I think. So more or less 40 years old, the oldest one. And those two sites, compared to other soils, with the very structured soils, you would think it can have quite a, a tannic wine. But those two give me very light wines. I've had the opportunity of working with grapes from Darling, not for Craven. But there is definitely a stylistic difference. And obviously a regional difference. I find the Swartland stuff is generally a bit darker. We tend to hold our acid and pH much better down here. I'm not sure why that is. I would like to say it's probably the cooler temperatures, but then again, it could be a clone thing. It could be a lot of things. The thing is they used to be a lot more sensitive. So while we see a lot of examples, a lot of them are blended samples. So it's hard to find single vineyard ones. But I think the biggest thing that we have down here is that acid and pH. Not that they don't get it up in the Swartland, but I think we seem to get a little bit more, but that's probably anecdotal. Also really depends on how it's farmed. Being that sort of light-skinned, quite fragile grape, we feel it really needs a lot of sunlight protection. The vast majority is bush fine. All our stuff is bush fine. So we do try and leave quite a bit of canopy on it just to protect it from the sun. Otherwise, it can get sunburned quite quickly, and I think that really does erode your acid. Coming back to Sinso being what my professor told me that was the most planted vineyard in South Africa, I think in the 60s it comprised 27% of the entire plantations within South Africa. And I might be incorrect on this, but it's some crazy figure that if you had to combine all the other red wine cultivars at that time in the sort of mid-60s and times all those areas by three, you would get to the number of plantings that Sinso was planted in, if that makes sense. So it was really the backbone of the industry back in the 60s. And I think one will be hard to disagree that a lot of the wines one drank there had varying proportions of Sinso in it. 
purely because there was just so much of it. I don't know. I wasn't around back then. But what I can tell you is that if you take a massive plantation of 27% of the entire industry and you dwindle it down to what it is now, which is just under 2% or around 2%, you've got an incredible natural selection process, which very few uh, wine growing regions in the world can say that a cultivar has gone through such a dramatic dwindling and what's remained in the ground, one could say through assumptions that it is therefore pretty good. And I think that's where this whole sort of perfect storm scenario comes in, where we've got these wonderful old blocks which have remained because the cooperative sellers where they usually went to quite liked them. The winemakers quite liked them because they were always good to blend in, lighten, soften, make things more approachable. Everyone wants these lighter style wines. Well, not everyone, but there is this growing movement. And we're sitting with this wonderful selection process of some beautiful sensor that's still in the ground. It's a natural process. The, the bad ones that weren't planted well were probably removed and planted with some other common cultivar. And the good ones remained. And that, now we're sitting with quite an interesting situation. We've got pretty exciting stuff in the ground, which is all generally pretty old. And then making some pretty interesting wines at the moment. You've got to bear in mind when the farmers were planting back in the 60s, it was generally a mentality of quantity over quality. So the clones that came in the 70s and 60s were these very big buried clone. And I'm generally working with these because these are generally the older vineyards. And with age, obviously the production has dropped a lot on these. So the quality is much better than I imagine what they were 30 years ago when they produced quite a lot of grapes. But the younger clones that are coming in now have a much different flavor profile. We've already had a hint from Alex on how unusual Sinso is to work with in the cellar. But what we'll find is that different winemakers have had different experiences vinifying it, sometimes developing very contrasting approaches. This can be a matter of personal taste or simply reflect the different character of the grapes depending on the vineyards they were grown in. The red grapes we were working with were Pinot Noir and Syrah. That was it. And for people that know us, we love whole cluster. We adore whole cluster. So we always did on Pinot Noir and Syrah. It was always 100%. We just love what it gives to red wine and particularly those varieties. But we always thought that any red grape can do whole cluster. We just thought it was a thing that could be done. And I think what was great about taking those grapes, I think we only took one ton, was we did 100% whole cluster. And it was the best thing we could have done because we figured out that is not only we feel not the best thing for the grape, but also took away a bit of dogma that we might have had in our red wine production. We always were 100% whole cluster or don't even bother making the wine. That was one of our little sort of things that we always hung our hat on. And I think it was a really good thing, especially early on in our wine production career or our brand to kick out one of those things. I guess we always have as young people some form of ideology that you shouldn't necessarily keep on to for the rest of your life. That was one thing that we learned quickly with Sinso. The grape itself is very light-skinned. It's a very big berry. For people that don't know what it's like, it's like buying table grapes. It's a huge berry. It's very delicious to eat, which a lot of wine grapes aren't. They're tasty, but you don't want to sit down and eat a whole bowl. But since so, you could just eat for days. We quickly learned from that perspective that it had to be treated a bit different to other red grapes, just purely visually looking at it. So that's what we learned that first year. One thing that we find with Sinso is it is a very, 
relatively speaking, low acid grape. And more importantly, it's a high pH grape. And without boring people to death about the chemistry of a whole bunch of winemaking, a whole cluster winemaking is when you add stems, you really exacerbate that pH acid balance. So if you've got a high pH and you add stems, you're going to make that pH even worse. For us, when we make our wines, acid is key. It's crucial. And so we try and do anything we can to preserve the natural acidity so we don't add acid. And so we just found to try and maintain any form of natural acidity, we had to de-stem it. So there's some people that can get away with it and make delicious whole cluster 100% or even partial whole cluster. But for us, over a few years, we just did less and less. And then one batch we did was just 100% de-stemmed and it just ticked all the boxes. So yeah, it's got a funny misnomer as being this potential high acid grape. But I just think from the nature of the grape itself being very plump and big, it's weak in concentration. There's a more pulp. So that kind of reduces the concentration of the sugar and the acid relative to other grapes. Most vintages, I do 100% whole bunches on both. I do a semi-carbonic maceration as well. But it's always just given me this very light, very bright, red-fruited wine. In the beginning, I was almost scared of all the stems. But in those two sites, stems don't actually give it lots of structure. It actually just gives it this spice slightly white pepper element to the wine. Whereas I have worked with Sinsos from Stellenbosch as well. And if I had to work with them again specifically, I would be very careful of the stems because the wines tend to be already quite structured. It can have surprisingly big structure, quite a dry tannin. And if you look at the actual grapes, a bunch of Sinsos grapes, it's, it's massive. It has these Huge berries. And you would think it's almost hard to get structure and tannins and color out of it. But depending on where it's grown and if it's nice old wine vineyards that gives you low yields, you can make quite a, almost a big wine out of it. I tend to go the other way. I like the freshness. I like to keep the flavor profile quite primary. So at least half of my sense is always done in concrete. It's aged either in a Concrete square of about two and a half thousand liters or concrete egg of about a thousand five hundred liters. And the, the balance would usually go into the oldest white wine barrels I have. It's such a delicate profile. You can't mess around with, with new oak and, and too much oak, I think. If I look at, at Sarah, at Carignan, at the Grenache, the other things I work with, the sensor always has the highest pH, even if it's picked considerably earlier or leaner than the others. The stems, to me, at least gives it this sort of perceived freshness. Even if there's a slight green touch to it, it's the swat line. The stems are never bitter. It's never going to add any bitterness to your wine. In a high pH variety, the stems actually gives you this sort of perceived freshness and just a lift to the wine. If you think about it, fermenting with the stems might actually make you lose a bit more acid and pushes the pH up. But that element of fresh stems, to me, it enhances the freshness of the wine. So I would, in the style of wine I make, I don't think I would ever leave the stems out. Some years the pH is very close to four, and I've had, I think, my favorite since so 
out of the six, seven vintages I've done was one vintage where the acid was actually very close to 4.3 and the pH was very close to 4 as well. It's still a fresh wine. It was still a beautiful wine. You learn to see what your vineyard wants. Sometimes to me that's also counterproductive. If you're just picking for the acidity, then you're not looking at the flavor profile. You're not looking at the ripeness of the actual grapes. There's a fine balance, but generally speaking, I think Senso is a high pH grape. We all know it. You'll never get, I, I can't see getting acids of six and a half or seven. It's not going to work. You, you can pick it at 9% alcohol if you want. You might achieve those levels of acidity, but there's other ways of getting freshness in a wine. And the stems is one of it. So far, we've been talking about red wines. But historically, there were examples of Senso being used to make white wine as well. Producers simply separated the juice from the skins before fermentation. But even more intriguingly, Donovan stumbled across some Senso vines that had actually mutated and began producing white grapes, much like Pinot Noir and a few other grapes have been known to do. Maybe before five years ago, I, I knew nothing about Senso Blanc. No one knew it existed. And there's a vineyard of Shannon in Wellington I work with for another project. And the owner of this vineyard told me that Rosa Kruger, Rosa discovers many things. She's known for it. But the, they walked this vineyard and said, listen, this one sort of section of that vineyard is definitely not Shannon. And they investigated further and they went to back to the farm's records and they saw that 0.2 hectares that was planted right next to the Shannon. It almost looks like it's one vineyard. There's actually a planting of albatross or Cinso Blanc. And then I found out about it. I've known the owner for quite a while. I just gave him a call one day and said, listen, I've just heard you have this quite unique variety. What's happening with it? He says, well, at the moment, nothing. Do you want to try and make a wine from it? So very lucky to be able to work with the one remaining vineyard because this one vineyard is actually, I think this year it'll qualify as an old vineyard. It's 35 or 36 years old. It sits on granite. It's burst vines. When I went there for the first time, it was just before harvest. It's, it's quite interesting to see it. The bunches are the size of normal red sensor. It's massive, but the grapes are completely white. So it's like working with Shannon or, or whatever. It unfortunately does also have the same issue with high pH and lower levels of acidity, which is not ideal for a white wine. So the challenge with Cinto Blanc, the first challenge is there's no comparison because at that stage, Salvis had it on the list of actual grape varieties, but no one's ever attempted to bottle a Cinto Blanc. So they had to create that category and... Also, I think lucky for me is there's nothing to compare it with, so they can't tell me it doesn't taste like Cinto Blanc. It's the only bottling and the first bottling of a Cinto Blanc. I usually make between 500 and 800 bottles of this wine because it's not something that's widely known and because I've only worked with it a couple of vintages. I'm still trying to figure out the actual profile of what it should 
be fermented in, when it should be picked. So I've done quite some trials and, and barrel and, and at the moment, mostly amphoras because I really just wanted to capture the essence of this variety. The history of the variety is very hard to get some proper notes on it. I eventually got hold of one of my old professors who knows about this variety. He learned about it at university from one of his professors. And that's basically the only thing that I could find out about this is what this one professor told me. And it was just that Cinso Blanc came from Cinso that mutated in the Cape to Cinso Gris. And from Cinso Gris, it mutated to Cinso Blanc. And then I've tried finding Cinso Gris, but that's obviously doesn't exist anymore. What he did tell me is it was once widely planted because like Shannon and like Columbar, it's a variety which should bear a lot of fruit. And for the same reason people planted Shannon and Columbar everywhere in, in the Cape for the production of brandy, they planted also Cinto Blanc. And obviously I think the other two outperformed the Cinto Blanc and it was pulled out through the last couple of years. And as far as we know, this is the last remaining vineyard of Saint-Sablanc. So yeah, very excited to be working with it. I think it's part of our heritage. And to me, it doesn't make, at this stage, the most profound wine, but it's a wine that has lovely texture. It has a, a sort of very fresh element, even with the higher pH and lower acid levels. I think if I had to put it in the middle somewhere with varieties we do know, it will be closer to Claret and maybe even Columbar. Although Columbar, to me, has a bit more fruit. Since a Blanc is, is more of a mineral, quite a savory, salty element to it. But something very exciting and something I would keep on making for the foreseeable future. As Mick hinted at earlier, historically, in South Africa and back in southern France, Cinso has often been used in blends with other grape varieties. That's still happening, of course. Some people, like Donovan, are blending it with other Mediterranean varieties like Grenache and Syrah, in line with the French tradition. Others are exploring a unique combination that was popular in South Africa in the 1960s and 1970s, blending Cinso together with Cabernet Sauvignon. I think the reason... I use it in my blend is the same reason I make a, a single wine from it is when you're working with Syrah, uh, when you're working with Carignan in the Swatland on mostly schist, it can be quite structured, can be quite deep, dark, sort of broody wines. And as since it is as a single variety, this light, bright, red fruited wine, I blend that back into the bigger wines just to give the wine more balance. And also sometimes since so, you can get a nice, ripe-flavored wine at 11 12% alcohol. So with Syrah, sometimes if you have to wait a little bit longer, maybe make some slightly riper wine, it's always good to have something fresh like Senso to blend back. If you look back to our history of blending Cabernet with Senso, blending Syrah with Senso in the old 30-, 40-year-old wines you can still find around from the Cape. I can see how those wines really paired well together because to me the Stalinbosch can have quite significant structure. 
compared to the vineyards I work with, I almost have to work them very hard to get any sort of tannic structure out of them. I do consult for another winery in Stellenbosch called Fierberg, and the Fierberg Red, historically, it's, it's always been a blend of border varieties and cab heavy with some petty, with some merlot. And since I've took over making those wines, it's been not a struggle for me, but to me in that particular area, the merlot doesn't perform well or well enough. And the reason maybe the site, maybe the soil, maybe that particular vineyard just doesn't work for me. But in the past, I've always had to pick the Merlot very ripe to get rid of the sort of green flavors that can be associated with a site that's not made for Merlot. And a few years ago, I thought, well, what can I add to this wine to make the blend a little lighter, a little fresher, a little bit lower in alcohol in a natural way? And, yeah, I think three, four years ago, I started blending some Swatland Senso with Cabernet and Petit Vido. To me, it improved the wine in a way that the wine's now a little bit fresher, a little bit lighter. And working with varieties like Cabernet, like Petit Vido, you have to wait for ripeness. It's not as forgiving as Senso or Syrah, where if you pick it early, if you pick it a week earlier, it's still fine. With Cabernet and, and with Petit Bordeaux, you, you need to pick it at the right time when the grapes are actually ripe. So adding Senso to me is also a way of just reducing the alcohol in that particular blend, where it was always 15, 14 and a half, sometimes 15 plus. I can now get it to 14, 13 and a half. And with the same sort of structure, and the Senso just adds a, a lovely element to the wine. I have made a Cab Senso wine, and I'll be honest with you, the verdict is out on it. I think you have to compare apples with apples. And in the 70s, when they did this sort of secretly blending Senso into Cabs, they were producing Cabs with a old clone virus Cabs, which had alcohols of about 12%. Maybe if they were lucky, they'd get 12.5, but could well be below 12 and I think these wines needed some perking up with some Senso. We've now got beautifully virus-free clones of Cab, which are so much more fruit-driven than they were back in the 70s. I've also heard stories that they used to use the Senso in the mash pumps, the big screw pump for moving the grapes, because those older clone Cabs had such tiny little berries, which are obviously more seed than juice. These worms, they call them, would actually block up so there would always be a tractor load of Senso to juice the thing up so it would keep running. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting story, really. The first year I did it was in 17. I just made a 1,000 liters just to play around with. And I thought this was a winner. Then in 18, I was actually slightly disappointed by it, and I really had to do a bit of retrospect if this was really... Am I just flagging an old horse which it's run its day? So no, I'm not convinced. I'm sure there's some beautiful wines out there. But I think you've got to do that whole thing of comparing apples with apples. I've tasted a few which are delicious, but sometimes I prefer my cab to stand alone or maybe with some Merlot or Cabernet Franc. I guess the whole Cinto and Cabernet thing, I would be lying if I said we haven't thrown some in a um, measuring cylinder together and had a look at what it looks like. We do make Cabernet from the Polka Dry region of Stellenbosch and 
It is in a bit more of the old school spectrum, 12.5%, a lot of whole bunch, so it's quite rustic tannin. And yeah, it is delicious when you put them together, I'm not going to lie. It's a great combination, I think. Craven as it is at the moment, it's always varietal and it always will be. Never say never about doing things, maybe for some other brand or something else, but there's obviously a logistical reason why they did this back in the day, but... I think there's great evidence that it is an amazing thing to do. Some of the older wines, the 60s and 70s, that hang around forever and drinking really well are a testament to that, whether it's the winemaking back then or whether it is since on Cabernet, but it's, it's good evidence that it works. And there's people now who are resurrecting that blend and they're delicious wines, especially with the way Cabernet is generally made these days, bigger and richer. And Cinsai is just a perfect sort of lend-off. It can be very light and fruity and really just harmonize that particularly the tannin can knock the edge off harsh aggressive tannins of cab if they're a bit unripe tannins or whatever that means so we've definitely tried behind closed doors and it is delicious whether we bottle one is a uh, we'll see maybe given the response south africans and so has received recently whether in blends like the ones we've been talking about or as a varietal wine it seems probable that we'll see more of it planted vinified and exported in the coming years especially given changing tastes in red wine. It is really this kind of perfect storm because this is such a growing love affair with lighter style reds at the moment. A funny story that happened to me was when we were at university, we were always told that the Americans enjoy big alcohol, lots of extraction, like a typical Napa cab or something like that. And I was always amazed at how well our sensor sold in America. And I got a phone call from this American guy saying, oh, is this not a filet? And I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, can I visit? I'm like, yeah, sure. He said, yeah, yeah I drink your wine in America. And I, by chance, are here for a wedding. And I'd love to just check your place out. So I said, yeah, I'll pull in any time. He arrived here, showed him around. He said, oh, he can't wait to get back to New York to tell his friends that he's been to not a filet. It's so awesome here, whatever. And then on leaving, I said to him, it's, what I don't understand is that I always thought Americans like bigger style wines. And he looked at me, he says, man, that's what my folks drink. So I don't know if that stands true, but I found that quite an interesting uh, statement that he made. I think versatility with Senso is quite a good thing. Like Shannon, there's lots of things that can be done with it. I think what we're sitting with at the moment is we are very lucky that this Senso in every region and there are old vines in every single region. And they all work in their own way. They all have a place. The, the wine styles might differ a little bit. We're lucky to have great old vineyards of this variety. And at the moment, the grapes are pretty cheap compared to other things. If you compare Cinso and Cabernet or Cinso and low-yielding sites of Syrah or whatever, even Old Vine Shenan, you can get amazing crops from those old vineyards still, which keeps the prices down. So we can make wine from the entry levels straight up to the premium stuff. I even made some Cinso Ancestral, like a pet nut style from Cinso, and it's delicious. I think the versatility as a grape, blending it with Things like even Cabernet or, or Merlot or Petit. Obviously, it works very well with the Rhone varieties. And then on its own, it just makes this, I would say, South Africa's lighter, more fresh style of red.
like to end our podcast with a little bit of a North American perspective. So in this case, I turned to Will Predom out of Toronto. Will won the Wosa Sommelier Cup in 2013 and has been a big supporter of South African wines since then, if not before. Will, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So now South African Sinso is a pretty small category in terms of actual production numbers. When did you first become aware of the grape in a South African context? Even prior to that, Sinzo is one of those grapes that you scan through when you're trying to memorize all the grapes of Chateauneuf de Pop or what's going on in Roussillon. So it never really popped out until I actually went to South Africa. And I think it was something environmental. There was a lot about visiting South Africa from a North American perspective that really resonated with me and maybe not only fall in love with the country, but with the wines and specifically Sinzo. And that environmental effect, if you will, is really related to the weather, the Mediterranean temperature, the aridness, the fresh sea air, the bright colors, the bright light. It's luminous in South Africa. The food itself as well is also super luminous. It pops off the plate. And then there's a vibrancy and energy that I've never really felt before having visited there. And from an export perspective, a lot of the wines that we'd seen here in Canada Prior to that, outside of a restaurant situation would have been the fuller, richer styles of wine from Stellenbosch. You have Swartland coming around, but they're making these beautiful Rhone-esque, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, in a very complimentary way, styles of wine. But lightness was not something that you'd really attribute to South Africa. But when you're there, you go to the patios and you're outside you're drinking these beautiful whites, but then you still want some red. And they're pouring this very grapey, juicy, fresh, I wouldn't say acid-driven, but something that has that refreshing character in a red. It's simply beautiful. And that that really piqued me in that environment. And it turned out to be this Sinzo, which, as we know, is a parent of Pinotage. But it's grown throughout South Africa, and it was casually drank. And this casual drinking notion to me really stuck when I left. It didn't always need to be complex and layered, but the freshness is really something that stuck to me. So since that moment, that's been nearly a decade, I've been seeking them out. And South Africa does, I would argue, the best job. I actually think the French are probably taking a page from the South Africans on how great this grape can be and how adapted it is to that Mediterranean climate. Yeah, it's very interesting. Since so has a, a long history in South Africa, but if you had tried to put it forward 10 or 15 years ago, all anyone wanted to talk about was these big, more powerful reds. And that's true, not just in South Africa, but worldwide. That was the international style. Totally agree with you there. And, and styles are meant to change, of course. And I think we were embracing that culturally now, especially here in North America, definitely in Canada, where it's not all about power. There's something to be said about finesse and simplicity. And uh, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not great. And you sent me some really great Sinzo examples to taste along that both mentally make me travel there, but that leave me, it's hot summer day today here. It gets hot in Toronto and I'm feeling super refreshed. In fact, I put them in the fridge for about 20 minutes before I started because I wanted that kind of pop, that dichotomy between the hot, humid outside and then the fresh, juicy red wine. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. We sent you a couple wines. I think the first is the Nata Valley, and that's 
100% Sinso from a guy who specializes in Sinso and even sometimes place specific expressions of Sinso. How is this wine showing today? You know what? I'd have to actually go back to two weeks ago when I received it because the first thing I did was open it. But I, I did take some notes. And the first thing I noticed when I looked at it and tasted it and then looked in the back, it's 12.5% alcohol, which is brilliant. We're seeing that trend, which I fully embrace, of lower alcohols but still riper fruit. South Africa can nail that when they want to. And this is a beautiful example of that. You had that fresh, grapey character. If, if you ever take a look at a cluster of Sinzo, it's a big, gangly, huge buried cluster. Mm -hmm. And it looks like a table grape, right? And this specific Sinzo tastes the way that cluster looks, right? It's juicy and full and purple. I know you can't taste purple, but you can taste purple. And in that instance, everybody just like that, also the hint of Finbos. I, I don't want to say Gari because it's not Gari. It's something distinctly different. Just on the back end and this lovely, simple, fresh finish. Again, you can chill it. I had that one right at room temperature. And man, it was exactly what the doctor ordered. I applaud them for respecting the grape here. So really putting the virtues of Sinso on display in that case. Absolutely. And you can try, and winemakers, please argue, you can try to extract more out of Sinso. And there's some amazing producers that get really quite round, voluptuous examples without being overripe. But there's only so much this grape can give. It doesn't give you oodles of tannin and tons of bone-crushing depth. It has a finesse no matter how ripe you get it. But again, it's adapted to that Mediterranean climate. It's grown up in that style of climate. So your ripeness levels have controlled. Even if the alcohol does get high, it still retains its freshness. You have grapes like Sinzo, Grenache, really does stuff like that. They're beautifully malleable for these climates and still offer that freshness. All right. So I think the other wine you have there next to you is the Duncan Savage Follow the Line. Yeah. How, what impression Wicked does this juice. wine make? Wicked juice. I love what Duncan Savage puts out. It's one of those, you see it on the shelf and really doesn't matter what it is. I just know it's going to be great. And it's also a journey. It's not afraid to experiment. And this has a little bit more of that concentration and depth relative to the Nata Valley. Not that I'm comparing them because it's unfair, but it's cool to see the way that they're brought up and developed and made. There is a bit more depth from this. It is grown in Darling, which is pretty cool. And another attribute to what Savage does, they get quite specific with their locations and they're quite honest about where it comes from. The round blueberry grape, it's a grapey wine. Imagine that. And again, a bit of spice, more of a pepper spice, almost an ode to Syrah in this instance, in the very smallest sense if I'm digging, but it's mm -hmm. juicy goodness. Nice. And to put those wines in context, I think it's worth saying you have the coastal region blend of the Nata Valley, which is... Basically, they're entry-level wine, and they do have single vineyard expressions, including one from Darling, from, I think, the same vineyard as Duncan. So we're comparing slightly different tiers within the portfolios. The single vineyard Nata Valleys, I don't know if we have them much here in North America yet. So that's the challenge there. Yeah, you have to go there to try them, right? And understandably, like, that's what everyone's drinking there. And rightfully so. They've made it. Their culture totally abides by it. You should definitely sell it there, but we'd be more than happy to have some here. I think our culture has really started to move in that direction of openness towards these mm -hmm. styles. You mentioned entry level. Entry level to me is where I judge the quality of the winery mm -hmm. generally. Of course, love trying 
single vineyard examples, prestige cuvées, so forth, right? But you can really tell a lot about a winery by the quality of its entry-level wine. This is the wine that's going to get into the most people's glasses, which is extremely important, right? It is your business card, I feel. And entry-level is not a dirty word, and this exceeds what most concepts of entry-level tend to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you've gotten enough into South African wine and in this case into South African Cinso that you've actually dipped your toe into making some wine yourself. So you've got a Cinso-based blend, if I remember correctly. That's correct, yeah. A few years ago, after that first trip, I was serious about South African wines in general. And it was a giant hole, I felt, that there was in the market in at least Canada. No one had seen the wines that I got to try. And so I partnered with Radford Dale, with Alex Dale, and Jacques de Klerk, their winemaker. And this is about six years ago, almost immediately afterwards, met with them and said, hey, I understand the finished product. I'm not a winemaker, I don't claim to be, but I've trained and understand what it's supposed to taste like at the end. And you guys make killer wines. They are European style, European trained. They love mm-hmm. the Pinots, the Gamays, the Cinzos, the Shenins, in that style, lower alcohols. And we just hit it off right away. So I'd go down there, normally with a team of Canadian sommeliers, and we would go collectively blend, want to share mm. that experience. And we make a Chenin Blanc, and we also produce a Cinzo Syrah. And these are in that entry-level price points, not the $12. In Canada, they're around nineteen ninety-five, mm-hmm. right? I wanted them to be on the buy-the-glass list price point, coming from hospitality. I wasn't too concerned about having a vanity label. The first vintage was Syrah Cinzo. We were playing around with the blend and trying to find something that complements one another. But then the following vintage, we flipped over to 70% Cinzo because it was just such a beautiful grape. The Syrah does tend to give it a bit more of a backbone, a bit more of a structure, a tannic structure. We felt Syrah just kind of added another little textural character, especially for by the glass for restaurants, because they're meant for that. They're meant to go with food, meant to go with conversation. They're designed to be thirst quenching and also make you want more. I think you make a great point about the, the food friendliness and the on-premise aspect in, in that sense. And with that, I, I wonder if you were on the floor today, who would you be cross-selling into these Cinsos? What would they be drinking before, before they got turned on to these wines? So who should be looking for these wines? Ooh, I'd say the adventurous. I think the people who are looking for something different. And that seems to be something that's happening a lot. I want to try something real. I want to try something that I haven't had before, but I still want <laughs> it to be good. If you drink Pinot, Gamay as well. Gamay, if you drink Gamay, you drink Beaujolais. If you like Beaujolais for an everyday restaurant, bistro style, I would definitely say try this out. It, it's the Gamay of the South. And again, at the start of a meal or something light, patio, when it's again warm outside. I, I love pairing with temperature and, and mm-hmm. sunlight. It just seems to work. Everything tastes better. That's where I would go. And I'd also lead off with it because it's easy to go up in strength and weight. But you still remember it because it has this beautiful, refreshing character. I hope you enjoyed this look at the revival of Cinso. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. In our next episode, we look at a grape that has been in South Africa for almost as long as since so. Bellingham made the first varietal example in 1957, but it really only came into popularity in the 1990s. 
and today it's the second most planted red grape in South Africa. It's found in almost every wine-growing region in the country, from the cool maritime vineyards of Elam up to the dry, arid slopes of the Swartland. It's time to look at Shiraz, or as we'll see, Syrah, depending on who you ask.